0: Hi, thanks for joining me. In 2008, the governments of Canada and Manitoba broke ground on what was to become the Canadian Human Rights Museum at the Forks in Winnipeg. In Douglas Adams' phrase, this made a lot of people very angry and is widely regarded as a bad move. The first among the waves of public outcry that were to follow was one from the Anishinaabe and Swampy Cree peoples, who have lived in what is now southwestern Manitoba since time immemorial. These nations objected to the building being constructed at the Forks because that's a site that has uh, long-held special significance for them. Among the museum's exhibits is one on genocide. It recognizes the five events that the government of Canada officially recognizes as having constituted genocide, which are, in chronological order, the Armenian Genocide, the famine in 1932 and 33 in Ukraine, a.k.a. the Holodomor, which we will get to later, the Holocaust, the ethnic cleansing of Bosnians in the former Yugoslavia in the early 1990s, and the Rwandan genocide. Now you're probably thinking, wait, this is Canada, right? Are they not uh, missing a genocide in there somewhere? In which case you would be right, which brings us to the second wave of public outcry, namely that the museum did not acknowledge Canada's genocide of indigenous peoples as such. Not the loudest, but certainly the most unusual among the uh, ruffled feathers, shall we say, was the response of a group calling itself the Ukrainian Canadian Civil Liberties Association, or UCCLA. In 2010, a rumor went around, uh, turned out later not to be true, that the only permanent parts of that genocide exhibit I mentioned were going to be Canadian treatment of indigenous people and the Holocaust. In response to this rumor, the UCCLA circulated postcards to donors depicting Winston, the head pig from Animal Farm, uh, George Orwell's famous political parable, and Winston's most famous line, some animals are more equal than others. Jewish and other community groups were predictably outraged, so the press got a hold of Ludimir Luciak, a member of the UCCLA, who declared that his intention had only been to show the injustice of one nation's genocide being given precedence over another people's genocide, and just that he felt that was unfair in a country like Canada. Why exactly Mr. Luchyuk thought that the best way to make this point was by depicting Canadian Holocaust survivors as communist pigs was at no point made entirely clear. In 2012, a Ukrainian nationalist historian and museum curator, named Ruslan Zabili, known to my usually reliable but sometimes iffy talk to type function as Jerusalem zombie, embarked on a speaking tour to North America where he talked to a variety of groups and organizations about Ukrainian history, particularly the history of various Ukrainian nationalist groups. A scholar named Per Anders Rudling, formerly of the University of Edmonton, but at that point at the University of Lund in Sweden, released an open letter claiming that Zabili was not the historian he claimed to be and that his talks aimed at falsifying the stories of and whitewashing the actions of a number of groups, including some who had directly participated in the Holocaust. In October of that year, a presumably bewildered and just kind of wonderfully Swedish Stieg Larsson character-looking Professor Rudling was called into his vice chancellor's office to find that the chancellor had received a letter signed by various leaders in the Ukrainian-Canadian community. The letter was concerned with Rüdling's comments about Zabidi and uh, claimed—stop me if you've heard this one—that Professor Rüdling was attempting to infringe on Mr. Zabidi's freedom of speech by telling them that he was a liar and his opinions were completely outside the mainstream and constituted genocide, apologia, etc., etc. Fortunately, Rüdling, besides confusion, presumably, suffered no serious personal consequences after a number of academics and activists who researched the topic immediately sprang to his defense— They wrote and signed an open letter of their own, which made its way back across the Atlantic. But we can imagine that uh, this was probably supposed to have some sort of a chilling effect. The Canadian letter had been signed by the head of the League of Ukrainian-Canadians, the head of the League of Ukrainian-Canadian Women, the head of the Ukrainian Youth Association of Canada, the editor-in-chief of an Edmonton-area Ukrainian newspaper, and the head of the, quote, Society of Veterans of the UPA, unquote. The UPA was the group that Rudling had pointed out in his original public comment, as having participated in the Holocaust. In 2015, the National Post, our second major daily newspaper, published a story from Kiev by their senior international correspondent, Mark McKinnon. And it was entitled, Bypassing Official Channels, Canada's Ukrainian Diaspora Finances and Fights a War Against Russia. The headline writer was referring to the ongoing war against separatists in the Donbas region of eastern Ukraine, who are widely understood to be supported by Russia. The article described how warehouses in Kiev were full to the brim with military equipment supplied by the Canadian diaspora to far-right paramilitary organizations in Ukraine. The article described how, uh, supposedly to get around the bloated and corrupt bureaucracy of the Ukrainian military, groups and individuals in Canada were providing supplies, financing, and arms directly to people fighting on the ground. Now, you've heard of non-lethal aid. If you're a bit of a news junkie, you may have heard of less lethal aid. McKinnon describes the supplies in these warehouses as sometimes lethal military supplies, which is fantastic. I guess that's like, you know, a gun, because it's only lethal when you're shooting somebody with it, but most of the time it just kind of sits there, you know. Anyway, not only were people in the Ukrainian diaspora financing these efforts, but some of them had actually joined up themselves. Uh, one Canadian individual, who went by the of Garrett Lemko, described his beliefs as, quote, Ukraine for the Ukrainians, unquote, and himself as being a quote, national socialist, unquote. Finally, in twenty seventeen, controversy erupted in Canadian media after the Russian Embassy in Ottawa posted two pictures to its Twitter page. One was of a Ukrainian Youth Center in Edmonton, and the other was a cemetery in Oakville, Ontario, which sound ordinary enough, but the photos were not. This is because outside of the Edmonton Ukrainian Youth Center is a bust of one time Nazi auxiliary police captain Roman Shukhevich, and the cemetery in Oakville was for former members of the 14th Galician division of the elite Waffen-SS branch of the Third Reich's military. By way of some context, this tweet followed on the heels of a number of statements and stories by figures in the Russian state and in the Russian media that depicted the Ukrainian-Canadian community as being essentially in thrall to a far-right nationalist tendency that was actively propping up Nazis in Ukraine, like our friend Lemko. Many of these statements were aimed at our foreign minister at the time and current deputy prime minister, Christian Freeland, known to my talk to text as uh, Good Feeling. And they surrounded Freeland's grandfather, Michael Chomiak, who operated an anti-Semitic pro-Nazi newspaper in occupied Poland during the Holocaust under the supervision of Nazi intelligence. Freeland, for her part, described these descriptions of her grandfather by figures in the Russian media as a disinformation plot aimed to sow discord among Canadians and damage our democracy. And she continues to publicly refer to her grandfather as someone who, quote, Worked hard to return freedom and democracy to Ukraine. I am proud to honor their memory. So I hope at this point that your reaction is something like what my reaction was like when I first heard all these stories. Mainly, uh, what what the fuck is going on? Because in Canada's very short list of virtues are that we generally do not try to get tenured academics fired for expressing mainstream scholarly opinion in their discipline. In recent decades, we have had a marked lack of tolerance for explicitly anti-Semitic cartooning, and thirdly, we were on the right side of World War II uh, from the beginning. In fact, the Waffen SS, uh, they of the Oakville Cemetery, were actually guilty of the only massacre of Canadian soldiers perpetrated during the Second World War uh, in Normandy, shortly after the landings at Juno Beach. And it's one of the things that led to the entire SS being declared a criminal organization by the Allies in the wake of the war. So, whence cometh this, this blind spot, this uh, this big blue and yellow exception where Nazis become freedom fighters, and the Second World War becomes nuanced somehow. Exactly how did the Ukrainian-Canadian community become a place where it's acceptable to say this sort of thing about Nazi collaborators and genocidaires? What gives? How did it get to be this bad? The answers to those questions is a pretty long and complicated one, as answers to questions go, so I'm hoping that this will be part one of a three-part series on Ukrainian nationalism in Ukraine and in Canada. I hope it'll help people understand uh, these long, uh, sometimes horrifying, and very often tragic stories of Ukrainian nationalism as it migrated back and forth across the Atlantic in the last century and a half or so, how it was shaped by interwar and Cold War politics, and how it was finally made kind of politically manifest in uh, much more recent years in Ukraine. But uh, we need to start a long time ago, so as Jeff Merrick would say, let's start the show proper.
1: На колочку праде на сорочку, як виведе веде мірку, до пошиє свитку, як виведе веде повтора, до пошия рукава, як виведе веде повтора, до пошия рукава, як ви веде повторив, до пошия рукавиці, як постану за до пошия як постану до пошия штанці.
0: Okie doke. Well, before we get started, I should probably introduce myself. Uh, My name is Jim, I'm from BC, and I have no qualifications of any kind. Moving right along, uh, we won't be able to do a whole entire kind of Mike Duncan-style historical walking tour, but we should still be able to orient ourselves just uh, enough so that when I make reference to things, everybody will know what I'm talking about. So, some geography. Let's picture the Black Sea, uh, that misshapen uh, appendage that the Mediterranean has, stretching northeast into the the heart of Eurasia there. Uh, You can think of it as the Atlantic giving European Russia like a cartoon uppercut in the stomach, and the Mediterranean being the arm, and the Black Sea being the fist. So hanging down in the Black Sea in the very middle at the top there is the Crimean Peninsula, the scrotum of the steppes. It gives the Black Sea these two bulbs that go north from the main body of water on either side of this peninsula, the eastern one is shaped like a negative cypress, kind of, but it's almost entirely separate from the rest of the Black Sea, so it gets its own name. It's called the Sea of Azov. It's got a long kind of index finger on it, uh, which points to the mouth of the Don. Uh, the Don's a river uh, that was once considered by some ancient Greek geographers to be the border between Europe and Asia, which is one boundary naming dispute that we will not be getting into. The biggest tributary of the Don is the Donets, as in uh, the football club Shakhtar Donetsk, or the Donetsk separatist movement, just as uh, Donbass, as I mentioned earlier, comes from Don Basin. Huh. Anyway, a few hundred kilometers to the west of the Don is the Dnieper, spelled D-N-I-E-P-E-R. The Dnieper is a massive, slow, winding river that drains over half a million square kilometers. It's one of those rivers that's been so much more than just a river for so long, which uh, is shown by the fact that what is today central Ukraine was once generally referred to as two parts, uh, left bank and right bank, Ukraine, referring to where they were from the perspective of somebody traveling downriver towards the Black Sea. I think it would be hard to find a better, extremely rough description of the Ukraine as a historical region than the lower Dnieper basin between the Don on one side and the Carpathians on the other. What are the Carpathians? Just give me a second. Obviously, every single bit of that is going to be politically contentious to somebody or other, Rather than just uh, calling it Ukraine, uh, you've noticed I've called it the Ukraine, which is a whole thing, you know. Um, but generally, I'm going to try to use Ukraine to refer to the state or a polity of some kind, and then the Ukraine to refer to the historical region. So this massive Dnieper drainage basin has incredibly rich soil. It's uh, really dark, kind of moist. It's like, it's like the best chocolate cake you've ever had, if, if it was dirt. And it's called Chernozem or black soil. Now, this stuff's great. It's got everything you need. It's got ammonia, uh, phosphorus. It's got uh, hummus. Uh, these are all apparently good things. You can only find a lot of this Chernozem stuff in two places in the whole world. One of them is this, uh, this plain in, in the Ukraine that we're talking about. And the other one is the Canadian prairies, uh, which is a little bit of uh, what we in the business call foreshadowing. Anyway, uh, the richness of this soil has ensured that Ukraine's most valuable uh, commodity... Uh, is to this day and always has been the land. In fact, uh, there's actually a thriving black market for farmland in Ukraine, which I don't imagine is a a common black market thing. But I, I don't mean just like land, like real estate. I mean, like you can actually pay a guy who pays a guy who will scoop up with an excavator, however many hundreds of tons of this black earth stuff. And then they do illegal waste dumps in the area that they've scooped out. And you can take the black soil and put it on your garden or whatever. In fact, there's this great story. There was a rumor that Sweden wanted to buy however many hundreds of thousands of tons of chernozem, but the place they were buying it from was called Poltava, which is this place where the Swedes had had this battle with the Russians a long time ago, and so they were buying the soil, and it became this huge thing. Uh, Unfortunately, we're not going to have time to talk about that. But the point is that for centuries, uh, Ukraine has been the breadbasket of kind of the world around the Black Sea uh, for places like Constantinople under... Every different name it's had uh, for Athens, uh, Moscow, Krakow, Warsaw, Vienna, you name it. In the Black Sea world, as long as there have been, you know, baskets or bread, Ukraine has been the bread basket. So there you go. That's Ukraine. That is the land of gently nodding, uh, sun-drenched fields of wheat stretching off under an endless blue sky. You know, like the flag, right? Big blue stripe, big yellow stripe. It's the kind of place uh, Gogol might write about or, or Shevchenko. You know, it's all, it's all beautiful young women uh, weaving each other elaborate flower crowns and strapping young men, jumping drunkenly around in uh, Liberace vests and hammer pants. But alas, uh, the place we're going to be spending most of our time talking about today isn't really part of that whole basin kind of classic Ukraine type of scene. It's a little left uh, to the west, and it's drained by a few different rivers, including the Dniester, the Vistula, and the Bug. It's part of Ukraine today, but it hasn't always been, uh, in part because Ukraine hasn't always been. It has a lot in common with the rest of Ukraine, but it has a lot of differences too. It often took a different historical path. So, by way of analogy, you might compare it to, you know, other places that are part of a country and at the same time not. Places like Cornwall or, you know, Brittany, uh, Bavaria, maybe even like Texas. So this part of the country has a distinct religion, uh, but not so much a distinct language. Um, it's closer to Budapest and to Vienna than it is to Kiev, and it's closer to Copenhagen than it is from Moscow. Uh, this region is hard to define exactly, but uh, fortunately we can't give it a name. Uh, it's called Galicia. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, Jim, I happen to know that uh, Galicia is a region in northwestern Spain. Uh, first of all, shut up. Second of all... It's the same name. It got it from a place called Halic, which meant crow, and then Halic became Galicia. Anyway, unfortunately, it's the exact same name. Uh, we all just have to live with it. That, that won't be on the quiz. Anyway, uh, Galicia is largely the base of those Carpathian mountains that I promised I would be getting back to. The Carpathians start in what is today Slovakia, kind of right in the center of Europe, um, where part of it is known as the Tatras, then it curves south and west through Hungary, and uh, through northern Romania and western Ukraine, and then it does this kind of dipsy-doodle before it reaches the Black Sea. It's Europe's third largest mountain range, so it's been very important to a lot of very different people over the years, but probably most of all because it really puts a definitive stop to this big, plain flatland that we've been talking about. Like, imagine that you were a giant and you were standing in Moscow and you had a huge bucket of water, like you were gonna wash a tile floor or something, and if you poured the bucket out uh, towards the west, The Carpathians are the point at which the water would ripple back towards you, in effect. The Carpathians are really something. They've got a lot of, uh, what, virgin forests is left in Europe, and uh, they've got Dracula. Um, So, alright, anyway, this uh, sub-Carpathian region, Galicia, uh, with its slightly worse, rockier soil, and this weird kind of political position between so many different regions and people and empire and and languages and you name it, that's where we're going to start today. I was going to tell you this is where the story starts, but it's not really where it starts. It's more of an, I have to tell you this story so that I can tell you that one type of thing. And the reason I say that is because you can't draw straight lines between the Middle Ages and the present day. And uh, people love to do that, but they're usually wrong or they're lying. So that having been said, much as I would love to really kind of lean all the way into the medieval history of Galicia with all these little ins and outs and alliances and wars and stuff, that would be entirely masturbatory in this context and i promised myself i'm gonna try to give myself five minutes to get to modernity so we'll see how i do you know disclaimer if you're actually an expert or or you know a lot about this part of the world during this period if i were you i'd just skip ahead five minutes right now just to spare yourself the agony of me cramming it all in here so the Dnieper, like i said more than a river uh it's been an important waterway for thousands of years uh Back in the day, water transport was so superior to land transport that it's difficult to describe. So the route through the big Pannonian Plain stretching across the North of the Black Sea was the rivers that we've been talking about, uh, which would get you to the Black Sea trade routes and then become the means by which, for instance, amber beads from the Baltic have been discovered in the ruins of Troy. Uh, Chinese coins start to show up in Viking graves in Scandinavia. This is quite a crossroads. So the Ukraine becomes the route by which goods from the Baltics and from Northern Europe, like timber, uh, furs, amber, obviously, and especially slaves make their way to the eastern Mediterranean, Constantinople, Athens, Alexandria, that sort of thing. They do this in exchange for uh, oil and wine, but also luxury goods, beads, ceramics, things that you can't get in the Baltic. Now, starting in the 6th century or so, um, Swedish Vikings, who are working as as traders on on these routes, they want a better cut. They start coming down these rivers uh, towards the Black Sea, well, slightly further to the west, and it's not clear exactly where, northern Galicia, eastern Belarus, um, southern Poland, a people that we call the Slavs are, are crawling out of this ethno cultural soup. Um, unfortunately, we don't know a lot about the early Slavs because they didn't write a lot of stuff down. A lot of what we have is uh, secondhand from high-handed, uh, pretentious, uh, dismissive Byzantines who describe them as very hardy, uh, very populous, and better bought than fought, so to speak. They worshipped a pantheon of of mostly natural gods that we know a little bit about. And uh, we know that when they took prisoners, instead of just ransoming them off, they would hold them for years. And after a period, they'd say, well, you can go back to your own people or you can join us. And a lot of people took up that offer, uh, which is one part of why they were able to spread so quickly. Anyway, they hook up with some of those Swedish Vikings I mentioned. Uh, Those are also called Varangians. Eventually, they start to form the imperial guard for the emperor in Constantinople. Anyway, Varangians and Slavs together, in what mixture, is very contentious, but they form a state in what is now central Ukraine, uh, centered around the town of Kiev, and it becomes known as Rus, or Kievan Rus, uh, usually in historiography. So in the early and high Middle Ages, uh, Kievan Rus is a very wealthy, very important state, It has the natural advantage of being at the center of all these trade networks I mentioned and it becomes a center of culture under the Rurikid dynasty. right? Very Scandinavian sounding Rurikid. People to know the most important is Vladimir the Great uh, later Saint Vladimir who supposedly became overcome with awe at the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople and dropped to his knees and, and vowed to convert his people to Christianity and he'd refused Islam because it meant that they would have to stop drinking which was their greatest joy and Most of that stuff probably didn't happen. He did it for political reasons, but he does convert the Rus to Christianity. He forces thousands of people into the Dnieper at sword point, uh, destroys the idols, smashes the old temples, and so on and so forth. Now, we're already at the turn of the millennium here. Um, Western Europe has been completely Christianized, but out here in the east, there's still plenty of pagans running around. So uh, there's these two saints named uh, Cyril and Methodius, you've probably heard of, uh, canonized for this. Long, I think, 8th century voyage they do through all these different Slavic lands. Uh, St. Cyril develops a script, Cyrillic, and together they codify a language, Old Church Slavonic, which then becomes the standard liturgical language for the Slavic lands that are uh, Eastern Orthodox, or that answer to the Patriarch in Constantinople. All the Slavic lands do this, except for Bohemia, for the Czech lands, who fall under the German kind of sphere of influence and become Catholic. Urus reaches its peak under Vladimir's son, Yaroslav, known as the Wise. Unfortunately, after Yaroslav dies, uh, the empire fragments into a number of successor states. This is much like the Carolingian Empire does after the death of Charlemagne. And the reason for it is that this is a time in history when it's very difficult to maintain large land empires. It's very difficult to ensure that your vassals uh, don't get stronger than you and kill you or just stop listening to you and start to rule their own lands like kings. Rome has an easier time of it because they've got this nice superhighway that connects almost all their lands in the form of the Mediterranean. Kevin Rus has no such advantage, and so it becomes impossible to keep together. So Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus today, as well as Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians, all kind of claim Rus as a political ancestor of sorts. Uh, obviously, Rus gives us the Rus in Russia and in Belarus. Galicia grows out of the westernmost successor state of Kievan Rus. It becomes an independent principality. It's characterized by a very powerful nobility, and the centralized monarchy that exists is relatively weak. It's often ruled in tandem with a region called Volhynia, which is to the north and the east. Uh, If you know where Chernobyl is, that would be in Volhynia. The only name from medieval Galicia that you really have to know is a guy named Daniel, Prince Daniel. Uh, who later gets permission from the Pope to call himself King Daniel. He's the guy in charge when the Mongols show up in the 13th century to own everybody one after the other. He becomes a vassal of theirs. He uh, submits, uh, drinks fermented mare's milk in front of the Khan of the Golden Horde and becomes a tax-paying vassal. Now, Mongols, apart from the awkward early stages where they slaughter like half your population, are pretty live-and-let-live rulers. As long as you pay those taxes I mentioned, They tend to leave you to your own devices, but by the time that the 14th century rolls around, Galicia is increasingly caught in a tug-of-war between the two ascendant powers in this part of the world, which are Poland under the Piast dynasty and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. The Poles take over what is today Western Ukraine, and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, being further east, moves down into Central Ukraine. So the Lithuanians during this time are expanding very quickly and what that means for central Ukraine is that they like the Mongols tend to live and let live, especially where the nobility is concerned, they're perfectly willing to incorporate Ukrainian speaking uh, Eastern Orthodox nobles into their technically still pagan ruling elite, you know, frankly, who wants to learn Lithuanian? Give me a break. In the West, though, it's a different story. Uh, It comes to be much more directly dominated by Poland, the nobility are of Galicia, like I said, are still very powerful but they get more and more Polonized. That means there's a lot of effort uh, for to get people to convert to Catholicism rather than the old Eastern Orthodox rites. A lot of these people start speaking Polish. And, you know, so much of history is just trying to imitate the person richer than you. And when you do that in Western Ukraine at this time, it means you're imitating a Polish person. And so does it come to pass that what is now Western Ukraine Despite most of the people speaking a language and performing a liturgical rite of worship in their churches that are both closer to what people are doing in Kiev than what people are doing in Krakow or Warsaw, despite this, it falls under the rule of the Kingdom of Poland, whereas meanwhile, in central Ukraine, local Ukrainian-speaking and Eastern Orthodox worshipping nobles are assimilated rather than Polonized. Now, we don't have a lot of time to talk about the Kingdom of Poland, um, but we do have to talk about one guy in particular worth knowing, uh, Casimir III, also known as the Great. Probably the biggest reason that Casimir is known as uh, the Great is because he's the author of an influential legal code that uh, makes people call him things like the Polish Justinian. And uh, being the laws guy is always good, because then you get to have a name like Casimir the Great instead of the epithet of Casimir's father, Vladislav was known as the elbow high in fact in a sense you could even say that vladislav was the first short king get like short but the most important reason we have to talk about casimir in the context of galicia is uh has to do with the jews medieval europe to put it extremely mildly is not a very good place to be a jew although the papacy technically uh holds the position that uh, jews are to be respected they're not to be Uh, Harmed or have their property stolen on on pain of excommunication and all those sorts of uh, hypothetically good things. These are regularly and and fragrantly violated by the Gentile populations of of Western Europe especially. So, like I mentioned, uh, Casimir became the king in around the 14th century. And, well, all he did was technically re-up, so to speak, uh, a set of privileges and rights that a predecessor, uh, a Boleslav, had given to Jews. Uh, this is, if you remember any of your medieval dates, the most important one is uh, 1347, which is when the Black Death comes to town. And when the Black Death comes to town in a world that does not yet understand microbiology, people look for a scapegoat. And the best scapegoat is seems to be these people that just don't seem to be getting sick the same way we are. And of course, that had to do more with uh, things like ritual Jewish ablutions and, and just not being covered in shit all the time. But... Uh, That was a good enough explanation for a lot of Christians in Western Europe, uh, especially in France, who put many Jews to the sword, uh, burned down synagogues. There was a lot of forced baptisms, notably in Basel. Uh, England had already expelled the Jews under Henry III some hundred years earlier. And uh, a lot of these attacks were not just motivated by, by plague scapegoating, but by simple plunder. Often these expulsions would be shortly followed by large public auctions. For instance, uh, famously, when the Jews were expelled from England, they could only take with them what they could carry. So when Casimir, uh, in 1348 or so, uh, re-ups these privileges of Boleslavs, they look very attractive because Poland is less hard hit by the Black Death than much of Europe. And so when Casimir makes it known that he's offering things like special uh, Jewish courts for Jewish people to be tried in for special tribunals, uh, not simply the Christian courts, for uh, adjudicating dispute resolution between Jews and Christians. Casimir offers them things like protection against uh, forced baptism, the death penalty for kidnapping Jewish children for that purpose, protection against blood libel, um, personal freedom. These are rights that are not granted to Jews in much of Europe. Many places still enforce very strict sumptuary laws on things uh, Jews in much of Europe are obligated to wear special hats, uh, to wear the yellow star, of course, where that came from. And so at a time, a, a wave of anti-Semitic violence during the Black Death, this, this, this invitation of Casimir's becomes all the much more attractive. So this is a period of major Jewish emigration to and settlement in the kingdom of Poland. And that means in Galicia, uh, currently under its sway. So after a few hundred years of this, uh, Poland is the most religiously tolerant country in Europe. And of course, it's a low bar, you know, this is respecting life and property, generally, usually that we're talking about here, but compared to everywhere else, it's 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 pretty fantastic. So, as I mentioned, by 1500 or so, Poland is the most uh, the most tolerant country in Europe in that sense, and Jewish people form about 10 percent, very roughly, very dependent on precise geographical area of the population. And casimir's motivations in this aren't simply altruistic or simply to obey the pope in rome although those may well have played a role jews often carried with them mobile capital so this invitation in response to an expulsion uh, is not an uncommon occurrence it's what the ottomans do for instance with uh, spanish jews after their expulsion in 1492. in fact so important is this connection that there's actually a a story that casimir may have had a a jewish mistress Um, but like all good stories that was probably entirely made up in the 19th century. Casimir, among other things, also founds the uh, University of Krakow, uh, today known as the Jagiellonian University, uh, one-time home to a man named Mikolaj Kopernik, who you may have heard of. But that's an entirely different story. So, it's the 14th century. It's Northern Europe. What's going on? Well, the Teutonic Knights are here. Uh, you probably know who those are if you've played Age of Empires II. They are a monastic military order, recently having found themselves evicted from their normal digs in the Holy Land by Saladin and the Saracens, and are trawling the Baltic region, uh, looking for pagans to do crusades against, uh, the Middle East having been shut off to them. And to coin a phrase, when all you have is a monastic military order, everything looks like a pagan. So, even though the Poles are just about the most Catholic people around at this point, um, as they arguably always have been, the Teutonic Knights end up invading Poland. Uh, this causes uh, Queen Jadwiga, Casimir's grandniece, or uh, Hedwig in English, seeks a union of marriage with the menacing, fur-clad, bearded, pagan Grand Duke of Lithuania, uh, a guy named Jagiello. Together, this union forms the uh, Jagiellonian dynasty, which is to rule Poland for the next couple of centuries. And together, the combined forces of Poland and Lithuania defeat the Teutonic Knights, in a great battle in a place called Grunwald uh so the Poles call it uh, Tannenberg uh, as it's known to the Germans uh an incredibly important kind of national moment for for Poland uh, that is memorialized in story and song and like 2000 guys uh with Geralt of Rivia avatars named shit like Polska Pavel 1683 on deviantart so what does this union and this victory mean Well, uh, Poland and Lithuania, the Lithuanians have converted to Catholicism, which was uh, the condition of Hedwig's marriage to Jagiello. They now form a personal union with one another. A personal union, you've probably heard of it in terms of uh, the United Kingdom, but basically it means that whoever is king of one or queen of one is also king or queen of the other. It's kind of hard for our modern brains to understand how you can be head of state of of two countries at once. It doesn't, doesn't really jive with how we do things these days. But the way uh, Annibale, the gentleman scholar and genius, uh, shouts out, explained it was that it's less useful to think of these royal houses in terms of the nations that they rule over and more useful to think of them in terms of of corporate boards that do mergers, acquisitions uh, that aren't necessarily tied to any particular product or even industry, but are always looking to increase their own power at the expense of others. So Poland and Lithuania, having their borders uh, relatively secure from the marauding Mongols or Tartars or Muscovites or Teutonic Knights or what have you, enters a period of relative peace and prosperity. Uh, It's at the center of all these different trade routes that I've been talking about. And uh, while there's relatively few times in history that it's good to be a Western Ukrainian peasant, this kind of late medieval period is probably one of the better ones. It's an area that wasn't hit as hard by the Black Death as some others, but uh, most peasants would have had uh, some livestock, uh, enough food to feed themselves, Uh, often with enough for a a little surplus to to uh, to trade. And the Polish magnates uh, that that owned the land in in Galicia often took their taxation, not in the form of of cash or in kinds, but in the form of labor. And in this period, it was pretty reasonable demands of labor. It might amount to something like no more than, say, a a few men from the village commune working on their master's land for uh, a few weeks, say. And This is also, of course, they didn't know it at the time, but this is during something called the medieval warm period, which, as you can probably imagine, is a pretty good time to be a farmer, especially in comparison to the uh, Little Ice Age that is to follow, which, uh, yeah, etc. In 1569, the king of Poland dies without an heir. Poland and Lithuania, uh, at a place called Lublin, are joined together in what becomes known as the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. What's that? Uh essentially the the commonwealth had an elective monarchy this marked both a a deepening of ties between poland and lithuania and closer integration but it also goes from a personal union to being the same country and as you might guess with an elective monarchy this represents a major upswing in the power of the nobility other nobles in europe are generally not electing their monarchs at this time in fact most nobles in 1569 are, are losing power very quickly to stronger and stronger centralized monarchs right this is you know, the historical course of France, for instance, is going from a tiny little irrelevant bit of the middle to the whole thing and an absolute monarchy. So that process isn't happening in the same way in Poland that it is in England, France, Spain, etc. So that the kings were, were elected doesn't mean they're not you know, inheriting the crown from their mothers or their fathers, but it does mean that the nobles have to approve them uh, before they're able to rule. In fact, the nobility in Poland is so powerful at this time that You could probably describe the country as an oligarchy or an aristocracy, as well as you could a a monarchy. In aiding to rule Poland, the nobility uh, would meet in these large sort of parliament things called the Sames. The Sames formed part of what the Polish nobles called their Golden Freedoms, uh, of which they were very proud at the time, and of which many people, uh, you know, Polska Pavel, are still very proud today, as representing a early quasi-republican style of government. Of course, as with every Seemingly every early quasi-Republican form of government, this was restricted to the nobility. The serfs have no golden freedoms. They are serfs. And in fact, in this period, they're getting more and more serfs and less and less peasants. But first, we've got to talk about the sames. The sames, like I said, they act as a sort of a legislature, but they also included something called the uh, liberum veto, uh, or the, the free veto, effectively. Uh, Latin is an official language, along with Poli- Polish at this time in Poland, which is why Mikolaj Kopernik becomes Nicholas Copernicus, as you know him. But uh, the liberum veto means that all you have to do is stand up and say, Nie pozvolam, meaning I do not allow, or you can say it in Latin, presumably, if you're, if you're a real asshole. But uh, basically what it means is not only is the current legislation under discussion tabled indefinitely, but every other piece of legislation that has been passed by that same in that session is repealed and then the same ends. So for unsurprising reasons... Polish parliament uh, during this year of history enters the English language as uh, an expression meaning uh, a place where nothing gets done. Which now that I think about it might be the world's first Polish joke but uh, that'll have to be for a different podcast. The Polish nobles in this period, uh, they're called magnates uh, magna, you know, as in, as in Magna Carta. A good example of the power of Polish nobles in this period is a guy named uh... I'm so sick of these Polish names his name is L.A scsz so i don't know whatever that is large the point is he gets into a lot of trouble with the law he's a he's a magnate out in the a- east he has a lot of land and he's always getting into trouble and he's exiled from the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth but since these exi- he's so powerful that these exile orders can't really be enforced and so what that does is he takes all these legal writs condemning to exile all like the actual documents in vellum or whatever and he has them uh, sewn into a cloak that he then wears around Krakow just as a fuck you. So that's that's the level of power and impunity that these people are operating on. And if you're that powerful, that also means that it's not a very good time to be a serf because power is a zero-sum game in, 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 in agriculture in this period. So not only are you getting hit with this little ice age and your growing period is getting shorter, but everybody else's growing period is also getting shorter, which suddenly means that the price of food in Europe is starting to double, triple, quadruple. And so since this is the bread basket, right? This is the grain place. Polish nobles are getting wealthier and wealthier. And all of a sudden, the ability of more farmland to transform in their hands into money, money, money means that there's less and less of it for you. It also means they need more and more labor to farm that land. We might vaguely kind of very roughly make an analogy to enclosure in 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 Britain, but don't think too much about that or it'll completely disintegrate. Uh, Ores Tsubtelny tells us that uh, in Ukrainian history, that by the end of the 16th century, that previous uh, labor requirement that I had mentioned—the maybe you know two days a week, depending—has increased to three, four, and now it's every man rather than just a few from the village commune. And it's just going to keep going up and up and up. And uh, legal rights too—not just not just economic systems, but the specific legal rights of, of nobles to, for instance, judge their serfs to act as legal judge, not just like ooh peasants or whatever. That uh, is brought in in, I believe, 1410. Hey guys, it's Jim. Uh, So I took a swing on that one and I was completely wrong. It was in 1457 that the Polish nobles got the right to judge. Uh, Wires were crossed upstairs. 1410 was the Battle of Grunwald. Jim, out. Uh, Polish nobles get that right. So not only is all that shit happening to you, but the one... What what are you supposed to get back out of the feudal system, right? What's the thing you get in return for giving your life away to these nobles? Protection. But you're not even getting that. Because I, I mentioned the Mongols earlier. Well, they're not what they used to be, but they ha- they're they not gone. Uh, the local kind of Ukrainian Mongols, if we could call that, their state has been Turkicized and Islamicized and is has transformed over hundreds of years into the Crimean Khanate, uh, known to everybody around them as Tartars. And Tartars' major source of income is slavery. Uh, so in this period, not only is, you know, maybe your best case likely scenario to work your fingers to the bone like a dog for this lord that despises you and then dying of some awful hemorrhagic fever in your 60s in your hut. But your best way of escaping that eventuality isn't necessarily joining a monastery like it once was. You're probably more likely to get uh, captured by Tartars in a slave raid uh, sold to Constantinople down the Black Sea and then chained to an oar in an Ottoman war galley where you'll spend the last few minutes of your life in a Puddle of you and a hundred other people's raw sewage, uh, praying desperately to God that uh, an insane Spanish man, uh, be pantalooned and big or helmeted, with his eyes rolling back in his head like the terrorists and Team America World Police, will hop onto your war galley and shish kebab you before the galley has a chance to sink with you still attached to it. So, like I was saying, that there's been very precious few good times to be a Ukrainian peasant, but well, you could probably say that this is one of the worst. Although the Crimean Tartars do produce, uh, indirectly, uh, somebody who is probably a good uh, a good claim to be the most influential Ukrainian of all time, uh, Rochelana. Because in 1510, a Tartar raid on a village uh, southeast of Lviv uh, yields a, a beautiful young red-haired girl who is sold progressively until she ends up in the sultan's household. And she is made the wife, Hurem Sultan, uh, her proper name, of Suleiman the Magnificent. You know, the Lawgiver, another Laws guy like our Casimir, And uh, it, she deserves her own podcast in its entirety, but uh, we could safely say that she was a pioneer of the girl boss mindset. Also, where Galician affairs are concerned, we need to note that during the, uh, the Poland-Lithuania personal union days, the Orthodox Church in Polish and Lithuanian lands were in communion, uh, their boss's boss's boss, with Constantinople, but during the Commonwealth days, this is no longer acceptable to the increasingly rabidly Catholic Poles. Uh, the Counter-Reformation, of course, is also going on at this time. And so the Eastern Orthodox Rite worshippers of, of the western part of the Ukraine, they were known as the, the Western Uniate Church or something, it doesn't matter. Anyway, they're incorporated into communion with Rome. And from then on are known as the, uh, the Greek Catholics, which sounds like a contradiction in terms because it is. In central ukraine during this time uh slightly less dismal and slightly more interesting things are happening the southeastern part of the ukraine in this period is is known as the wild fields uh because ukraine is a fucking you know young adult fantasy novel map in this period are becoming kind of a a marchland, as they would have been called in the middle ages a a lawless frontier area this means that the peasants who end up settling there because you know somebody's always going to settle there it's really good land right The peasants who do so whether it's to escape an increasingly harsh uh, feudal system or it's to escape the law or just because like i said it's good land these communities of peasants become kind of militarized Uh, they start riding horses Uh, they have to know how to fight to defend themselves against tartars and whoever else uh, seeking to impose rule on them and they become quasi-independent often semi-democratic but very militaristic communities and we call these communities Cossacks. They have the top knots, they have the, the big pants, uh, they have the cool dancing and the, the, the painting of them replying to the sultan, all that stuff. This is where they come in. These incorporated uh, Ukrainian nobles of central Ukraine, it's really hard to draw a firm line between who is a minor Ukrainian noble in this period and who is a Cossack. In this period, there's a lot of, like I said, fiercely independent, uh, for obvious reasons. There's a series of uprisings against organized Polish-Lithuanian authority in central and eastern Ukraine. These progressively get more and more severe with often Ukrainian-speaking Orthodox Cossack minor nobles demanding increased increased rights, demanding fair treatment, because this is the period, like I said, where the magnates are getting more and more powerful. But by 1648, a guy named Bodan Chmelnitsky has had enough. He's been mistreated by a magnate. He's been screwed out of some land that he was supposed to inherit. And he goes and starts a, a good old uprising. And unlike most uprisings, bodan Khmelnytsky's uprising of Cossacks and of many Ukrainian serfs against the Polish state is very successful. He succeeds in establishing a, a proto-state known as the uh, Cossack Hetmanet. Hetman. Head-man. Right? Dudes rock. Anyway, Bodan-Hmelnitsky's Taking a big chunk out of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is known in Polish historiography as something called the Deluge, because a lot of bad things happened for them in 1648. They have a war that goes badly with Sweden and with Russia. And so Melnitsky takes the opportunity and carves out a Cossack principality in central Ukraine. Tragically, in a pattern that we will come to see repeated ad nauseum in in this series, the Melnitsky uprising is also accompanied by a horrific wave of anti-Jewish violence. Scholars are divided to some extent... To the de- about the degree to which the anti-Semitic violence of the uprising was purely religiously motivated and, and egged on by clergy, and how much of it was had to do with the, the roles that the Jewish people uh, play in Polish-Lithuanian society. Not only are uh, the Jews of the Ukraine, especially in Volhynia, becoming more and more the, the mercantile class of the areas they inhabit, but also... Many of these Polish magnates have no interest in managing their estates directly. Often they will delegate things like tax collection, things like the the nitty gritty of landlordship, to Jewish people. But I'm sure you can immediately see, even if you're not big into historiography, how it becomes really iffy to look at motivations for pogroms, right? Because it's really hard to try to express, try to dig into motivations, into what drives people without it sounding like a justification after the fact, right? Because there's plenty of that in Polish Ukrainian historiography. So for our purposes, we'll say that the Melnitsky uprising represented one of the first and worst episodes of anti-Semitic violence in Ukraine, and that its causes are not entirely clear, but also I'd like to introduce a different one, which I don't see much, uh, plunder. Uh, Often people killed the Jews because they could, and then they took their stuff. Often they had slightly more of it than the people around them did. The reason for that is that the Jews of Central and Eastern Europe during this period are becoming what's known as a middleman minority. Uh, The scholar to read about this sort of thing these days is a guy named uh, Yuri Slezkin, director of the Eurasian Studies Institute at UC Berkeley, uh, a great Russia program that also produced a great teacher of mine, Ilya Vinkovetsky. Um, anyway, Sleskin describes the role of the Jews in Europe at this time as analogous to the role of Armenians in West Asia, of Arabs in the, uh, East Africa, and even to uh, overse- overseas Chinese in Southeast Asia. Sleskin sees commonalities in all these things. He, his system is that he divides people into what he calls Mercurians uh, being the Jews in this case and Apollonians being the uh, Ukrainian speaking serfs around them. Basically, the dynamic that Sleskin identifies as growing and as reproducing itself in all these different societies is one in which a minority of uh, common language and often religion uh, begin to become service providers to a larger, broader population of primarily food producers. So, as I mentioned, uh, Poland had freedoms for Jews that weren't typical of other European countries at this time, but there were still many restrictions. Often Jews still lived to a great extent at the mercy of their lord, not necessarily life and death, but the right to settle. You can imagine how if a king or a lord or anybody else doesn't want you living in a place, by hook or by crook, uh, you're not going to be living there long. By way of example, taking again from uh, Petrovsky Stern, uh, Say a Jew wants to settle on a Polish magnate's land. Uh, What the magnate might do would be to say, sure, come on in, but in exchange for my magnanimity, you're going to run my liquor monopoly. All the liquor that's sold in this part of my land, it's going to go through you, and you're going to give me a cut. And when I say cut, I mean like realistically half or more. That's an example of how this sort of economic interchange might play out and also how the Jews would come to occupy a position in society that's different in economically as well as uh, often geographically from uh, surrounding orthodox serfs. Jews in this period also tend to be somewhat more mobile. They tend to have some uh, kind of longer range networks established between different Jewish communities that enables uh, mercantile practices in a way that would not have been possible for a serf who isn't allowed to move, Right, is bound to their land, like I said. These people can't go off trading. But the Jews, by virtue of their uh, not being landed of their not fitting into corporate separated medieval society in the same way the serfs do end up filling this need for a group of people that can provide services that can run businesses that can uh, perform carry out trade and the polish magnates are, are very happy with this arrangement petrovsky stern describes their relationship to the magnates as the geese who laid golden eggs so this middleman role that also would have extended to as i mentioned uh, grain sales it's initially performed out of necessity but Later and later, it it perpetuates itself, as we might imagine, right? In medieval society, your best bet for what you're going to be in your life and what you're going to do is whatever your father did. So this, uh, Sleskin's Mercurian role for Jews in this period manifests and replicates itself through not just acumen and understanding how to keep accounts, but things as basic as literacy, as speaking more than one language, as knowing the way to the next town. Here I'm going to stop beating around the bush and start quoting from Petrovsky Stern directly in his description of how the Mesteczko, or Polish private town, originated. Quote, This town grew out of a small manorial estate. To make their estate and surrounding settlements into a town, Polish landlords obtained special royal privileges, allowing them to establish annual fairs and regular market days, and to produce and sell liquor. In early modern times, the privilege was a legal document, implying, among other things, a monopoly. No one else could have annual fares on those dates, and no one else in the vicinity would, could distill and sell vodka. Privileges shaped the protectionist economy, which enormously favored the magnates and boosted the economy of their estates. It also, however, favored the Jews, who were invited to settle on the landlord's estates. In exchange for legal residence, Jews had to fulfill a specific obligation. They had to bring in trade and trade in liquor. They had to engage in specific occupations and perform an important function rather than just settle as passive colonizer. The mestechko thus emerged as the product of precisely this Jewish activity, which made private towns into prosperous, economically advantageous, and financially beneficial possessions, that is, for the magnates, of course, unquote. So we can see readily how a setup like this would make the trading economy just so Jewish over this period. And during this period, it's also worth noting, although it will come as no surprise to anybody listening, but anti-Semitism as we understand it in the modern sense was mm, rampant, wouldn't describe it, ubiquitous, maybe. Uh, quoting Stern again, the magnates ritualized Jewish discrimination in the ritual of mayufes Every year in May, a Jewish leaseholder would come to the manor of the Polish landlord to perform a humiliating dance and an ingratiating song, thus submitting himself to the landlord, who would condescendingly pull the Jew by his side locks, Unquote. Humiliations like this were part of a, a spectrum that Stern calls a dialogue of violence that characterized uh, Jewish-Gentile relationships in Eastern Europe in this period. While much of it was restricted to humiliation and those sorts of things, every so often it did become manifested in brutal violence, not just by ruling elites against Jews, but also from serfs against Jews, uh, both of which, nobility and serfs, uh, engaged in the uh, horrific pogroms of the Melnitsky uprising that I mentioned and of the Koliivshina that was to follow. So I hope that describes, in very few words, uh, Where the Jews were in Eastern Europe and and in Galicia during this time, how they got there, why they got there, and how they were treated. So despite this this horrific anti-Semitic violence, this period is remembered in Ukrainian historiography as something of a golden age in the sense that it was Ukrainian speakers that were the most powerful people in what is now Ukraine. Which isn't nothing, and it's a situation that won't be again replicated for, well, hundreds of years, no matter who you ask. Uh, there were a few other things that made central Ukraine special. Uh, since the most important, since you have all this really good land, the most important input in economic production becomes labor. Uh, the most important variable variable input, I should say. And this gives peasants uh, some measure of negotiating power and leverage with the people who lord over them, literally speaking. But you know who doesn't have a lot of land with which to drive a harder bargain with their nobility? Galicia. And thus do we uh, seamlessly transition back to talking about the West, where not only do the peasants have, do not have this, this leverage of land that I mentioned, but also they're experiencing new restrictions on their freedom of movement. Uh, famously in, in, in Russia and in, in central Ukraine in the Cossack period, serfs were allowed to leave their land if they didn't like the deal, if they didn't like the bargain, so to speak. Although this right becomes increasingly and increasingly restricted Eventually, it's only a few times a year, and then eventually it's only one day a year. And eventually, the right to leave is more or less abolished entirely. And that's the point at which we can start calling Western Ukrainian peasants truly serfs. Not quite slaves, uh, but not a good way to be. And like I said, if you prefer actual chattel slavery with a collar around your neck and your legs and shackles, there's always the Tartars. So, the political status quo in Ukraine for the next 200 years or so, after the signing of that Treaty of Lulubin, Lublin, excuse me, is that you've got in the West, your nobles increasingly powerful and increasingly Polish, and in the center of what is now Ukraine, you have this emergent Cossack Hetmanate that is still speaking Ukrainian and not entirely beholden to any of the three major powers around them, Ottoman, Polish, and Russian, that they are regularly playing off against one another, and Sweden to a lesser extent. But you remember that I said in the same that one person can hold up the legislative proceedings for an entire country? Well, that becomes a problem because uh, other people around you will just start to bribe your legislatures to grind the office of government to a halt. And so in, by the end of the 17th century and by the beginning of the 18th, something like half of all these sames are ending in deadlocks and being liberum vetoed into nothing. <laughs> can you imagine that? You know, a foreign power bribing a legislator to vote against their own country's interests? Crazy stuff. Anyhow, uh, the the poles in the decades after sixteen forty eight and the melinsky Uprising and the Deluge, uh, they have they don't cease to exist as a major power. In fact, in sixteen eighty three, they have this this glorious moment where uh, Jan Sobieski the the Lion of Lechistan, as the Turks called him, he breaks the siege of Vienna. Right, you know, here's this bastion of Christendom about to fall to the the godless heathen Turks, and he leads. Ten thousand of these Polish hussars over the hill, down the mountain, to uh, to smash the Turks and save the day—a scene which I'm pretty sure was the direct inspiration for Gandalf and the Rohirrim at the end of the Battle of Helm's Deep. But that's a different story. Uh, you remember our, our friend, uh, our friend Polska Pavel? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. All over that one. Uh, Randy Marsh type uh, type volume. Anyway, the effect of this uh, increasingly ineffective same and having a very powerful nobility. Well. Everybody around you, Austria, Prussia, and Russia, are adopting something called absolute monarchy, which happens to be much more effective in getting things done than a bunch of uh, a bunch of Poles in, in one big room yelling at each other. They start to take pieces out of Poland. Uh, and I mean this literally. The first partition of Poland, Poland absolutely loves to get partitioned. They can't get enough of it. That these three emergent great powers uh, drop a map of Poland and decide that everybody's getting a peace. Russia takes a large part of the east, Prussia of the north and west, and Austria of the south and west. That's right, that's our Galicia. This happens in 1772, and all of a sudden, these uh, Ukrainian-speaking Eastern Orthodox worshipping peasants that have been under, I think we can call it a yoke, of the Polish-Lithuanians for all this time are suddenly subjects of the Habsburg Empire of Austria. Who are they? They haven't really made an appearance on our scene yet. Well, you've probably heard of the Habsburgs. Uh, the Habsburgs are Austria. Uh, I don't mean they're Austrians. I mean, they are Austria. Not a lot of people are calling themselves Austrians at this time. Uh, as, as an ethnic identification, Austria is kind of more of a corporate headquarters uh, for, for, for a ruling dynasty in the sense that I mentioned. But they are, in some respects, uh, much better rulers than the Poles. In fact, both the Austrians and the Russians uh, cite Polish treatment of Ukrainian speaking serfs as a reason to, as a justification for their more enlightened absolutist takeover of these areas. Uh, a guy named Larry Wolf has written a great book about Galicia's role in the Habsburg imaginary because it's, of course, it's not all true. And Galicia, since it's such an economic backwater, becomes kind of this foil for the Austrians to imagine anything they like. But he cites stories that uh, that people would tell about. A Polish magnate telling a Ukrainian serf to go get a cuckoo nest out of a tree and then just shooting him and watching him fall out just as something to do. There's a story about a Polish magnate who makes 50 peasant women lift up their skirts and bend over and then calls their husbands to identify them from behind. And those who failed to do so are caned. Uh, floggings are, are common in this period. Uh, in fact, the a, a Russian writer describes the Polish as treating the Ukrainian speakers as worse than colonists treat their Negroes. And don't worry, I'm not getting into a big Irish slaves thing. But while recognizing that these are propaganda intended to legitimize uh, Russian and Austrian takeover of these areas, it's a where there's smoke, there's fire situation. Nobody's saying that the Poles are nice in this period, and there's plenty of people saying things like that. So drama aside, this is, in a very strict legal sense, probably an improvement for your average Galician peasant. And fortunately for them, the emperor of Austria at this time is a guy named Joseph, who you may remember from Amadeus. Great movie, check it out. Uh, But Joseph is your classic kind of move fast and break things. Uh, He's a disruptor. He's an absolutist disruptor, like all the other disruptors would like to be. Joseph is doing some interesting things. For instance, he's emancipating the Jews, meaning that he's giving them equal legal rights in the same courts that the Christians use. And it's not total. There are still some sort of restrictions on the types of Jobs they're allowed to hold, but largely this removes most of the legal distinctions between Jews and Gentiles in all the lands that are ruled by Austria. Uh, Joseph is also doing things like emancipating the serfs, although when it gets to Galicia, increasingly an economic and in some senses cultural backwater, this amounts the liberation, emancipation of the serfs amounts something to more like, "Oh, you who are my serf? Well, uh, you are now my employee, and I'm not your lord. I'm your boss." and The wages that I'm going to pay you are whatever I paid you last year, and in return, the work I expect from you is whatever work you did for me last year. So while this is a legal distinction that's not irrelevant uh, in the day-to-day lives of most of the serfs of Galicia, it would have made a, a relatively negligible difference. Anyway, but you heard about enlightened absolutism. You heard the serfs and the Jews are getting emancipated. And you know what that means? We're in modernity, baby. French Revolution, just around the corner. And with modernity having arrived, let's see how I did on time. 35 minutes. Okay. So the bad news is that you've just spent an hour of your life listening to a mostly medieval and sadly, in the end, masturbatory podcast that you didn't really sign up to do. But, you know, you got it for free, so I don't really give a shit. But the good news is that this is now a four-part series on Ukrainian nationalism in Ukraine and Canada, so that's pretty cool. We're at 55 minutes now. Uh, We won't put this time to waste. We'll have to do the 19th century and the rise of nationalism in other places and and all those sorts of things in the next episode, which will be a decent mise en scene for for immigration and whatnot. But uh, we should use this opportunity to do a little bit more uh, about the Jews of Galicia. Uh, about the Jews of the Ukraine. So, the Jewish people that live in what is now Ukraine find themselves under the rulers of two different empires, under Catherine of Russia and under Joseph of Austria. Generally, as a very general rule, it's way better to be Jewish in the Austrian Empire than in the Russian Empire, but not uniformly, this it's totally dependent on time, geography, etc. While well, I didn't mention it, however, in, in the kind of death throes of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth as a great power there, we should also mention that in 1768, only four years before the first partition of Poland, there's a few other ones too, there's uh, an uprising, another one of these Cossack and peasant uprisings of Orthodox Christians against their rulers, this time both uh, their Polish rulers and their Russian rulers, known as the Koliivshina. The historical circumstances and the kind of course of events of this uprising are pretty murky this is for a relatively modern period the the, the sources are not great but it's a, a, an uprising against against Russian and Polish rule as i said and it too ends in among other things uh, most notably it's it's total and utter defeat but it also ends in a, a massacre in a place called Uman of Jews and of Polish Catholics who many uh, eastern orthodox people also saw as a, as a as a cause of their suffering uh, in this time But yeah, at at Uman, uh, a fortified city is taken, the Jews inside take cover in their synagogue and are largely slaughtered by the Ukrainian rebels. So before we sign off today, I think we should uh, take a step back from the narrative, uh, see if we can take a little longer view of things that will enable me to get on my soapbox for the next couple minutes here. You may have noticed that uh, for a podcast about Ukrainian nationalism and uh, the history of Ukraine, I have not used the words Ukrainian uh, very much. Um, I try to use uh, Orthodox or Ukrainian speaking, and there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is that if you asked a villager in Zhitomir or Podolia in 1715, and you asked them, are you Ukrainian, uh, they probably wouldn't know what you're talking about. Ukraine's not a country. Humans, uh, we'd like to think that we can view history as a, as a continuum, and that we can, you know, work our way through it and figure out how different things happen in contingencies and Roads, all that stuff. We, that's not really usually how we actually do things in our heads, though. Usually we look at the present day and then we try to look into the past to reverse engineer it and find out how it all came to be this way. And there's, it kind of starts to become uh, predestined. For instance, if you set out to write a history of Ukraine, the country, a country that doesn't exist for most of the period of the events that lead to its formation, you can see how that will, how that will color, how that will taint effectively the way you, that you analyze the past. Because the motivations of people at the time don't line up with the teleological endpoint that you have them all working towards. It's hard to say just whose fault this is, whether it was the Whigs or the nationalists or or whoever that made us think about history in this way. But the fact is that that approach isn't just wrong factually. It's it's dangerous because it, it also serves to justify things. It also serves to support things about the present that maybe shouldn't be supported. What I'm trying to get at, and I'll get into this a little bit more at the beginning of the next episode, is that there's nothing predestined about any of the things that I've described. Ukrainians, Jews, Cossacks, Poles, Russians, they're not essentially one way or the other. I make generalizations because it's easier and I have a limited time span. But the fact of the matter is that all these things that happen, all these events, are contingent upon material circumstances, economic conditions, political conditions. They determine why they happen at the times they do and why they don't happen in other places, things like that. So while there are patterns like, you know, middleman minorities being targeted for violence in the case of civil unrest like the Armenian genocide or the killing of Chinese in Southeast Asia or the early 1960s, we have to be careful not to essentialize. For instance, we have to take care not to look at uh, the horrors of the 20th century in this part of the world and project them backwards and throw up our hands and say, well, it was ever thus. Because there are two groups of people whose politics that support You may know who they are. If you don't, well, you'll have to listen to the next episode and the ones after that. Basically, what I'm saying is that in order to avoid being essentialist, we have to recognize that patterns do not equal inevitability and that every event is contingent and dependent and can only be understood as such. Just as there wasn't some Ukrainian nation with its current borders just out there waiting to be born when everybody realized it, the massacre of Uman wasn't bound to happen. Nothing is. In fact, the massacre at Uman represented the last major bout of anti-Jewish violence in central Ukraine for nearly 100 years, until the the pogroms uh, in the Russian Empire of the 1880s. So, yeah, essentially we have to take these things as they come, evaluate them on their own merits, and not purely in light of the present day. So, uh, with that little semi-coherent bout of rambling, uh, that'll bring us to the end of uh, this, my inaugural internet radio program, uh, which I hope you had maybe a tenth of as much fun listening to as I had producing, and slightly less frustration. Anyway, uh, you'll tune in next time, uh, we'll have to get started with uh, Habsburg Galicia, set the scene, and talk about, uh, oh boy, immigration, and we might make it to World War One, but I'm kind of downwardly revising my estimates of Uh, how quickly I'm going to be able to get to the um, meat and potatoes of Ukrainian nationalism here. Anyway, we'll see how it goes. Uh, Thanks very much for listening. Uh, Thank you in advance for any feedback. Fuck you in advance for any owns that you make about me, for making a podcast. I'm not interested. I know, I know, I know. That having been said, stay safe, stay isolated, and you know I gotta say it. Keep your stick on the ice, folks. Hey, folks, it's me again. Just a quick PS. I realized I forgot to tell you about the music. Um, we started the episode with uh, Vesnyanka, or Spring Song, by the folk ensemble of Starikoni Village in the Zaretniansky district of the Rivnia region. So, big shout-out to them. Uh, their music comes to us by virtue of some kind of a UNESCO program, it looks like, where in the early 90s, they got their Alan Lomax on and uh, toted recording equipment around uh, various uh, Ukrainian backwaters and goonies. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, the thing about uh, recording folk music is that the quality of musicianship is, uh, shall we say, inconsistent. So uh, to reflect that and uh, to play us out in Bill O'Reilly's famous phrase, uh, please enjoy the uh, folk ensemble of uh, (laughs) amalgamated out of the Ostriv village of the uh, Burg district of the Lviv region. And a big shout-out here to uh, Loach Gang, to Roxy Fever, and to uh, La Wisconsin Insoumise. Please enjoy On the Wide Danube.